0: All Hello, everyone, and welcome to the DealMaker Show. So I'm really excited about the guests that we have today. We're definitely going to be learning a thing or two about medical devices and then really building and scaling meaningful companies. So I guess without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Daniel Hawkins. Welcome to the show.
1: Uh, hi, Alejandro. Thanks very much for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. Happy to be here today.
0: So born and raised in Philadelphia. So obviously a pretty entrepreneurial house. So tell us about your upbringings. Yeah,
1: I'm the son of a primary care physician. And uh, the very first house that I lived in, uh, we actually lived on floor two and three of a three-story place. And the first floor was a was a medical center, was my father's office. And uh, we were in and around healthcare from day one and kind of had an entrepreneurial bent really from the uh, earliest of my memories. My first entrepreneurial experience was at age 11. My family had a a piece of property um, that we moved away from the city out into the suburbs. And we had a piece of property that had holly trees on it for those on the east coast you're certainly familiar with these they uh, they show up a lot particularly in the northeast they're that classic green leaf with thorns on it kind of a tree branch that has the red berries on it Uh, that's that's holly trees i used to have to cut those and trim them and we had really large ones in our backyard I didn't really like taking them to the woods. So what I uh, asked my dad one time after visiting the the, uh, grocery store with my mom and seeing them for sale outside is if I could actually just sell them door to door. So what I did uh, my first year doing that is I, I took a piece of paper and drew some columns on it and wrote some addresses and names. And I had a small bunch and a large bunch and then a wreath and I made some samples and I went door to door and took orders you know, right, right, uh, right after Thanksgiving, delivered all of those orders in my mom's station wagon. Uh, Did pretty well that year, did a little over a thousand bucks. And, you know, being uh, north of 40 years ago, that was that was a big number. That was kind of the itch that uh, started to get scratched. And, you know, I found myself uh, going to Wharton undergrad with an eye towards Wall Street. And, you know, uh, when when I was there, my, my parents had a they had a deal with all of us. I had uh, one brother and two sisters, and the deal was: if you get whatever school you get into, uh, we'll 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 pay for it, but you need to pay for room board and books, which worked out at the end of the day to be about thirty-five or forty percent, and of uh, the total. And the way I did that was uh, I ran some soda machines in in a number of buildings on the university's campus. So every Tuesday morning, I would meet a Philadelphia Coca-Cola bottling truck and, and receive what started off at about 70 cases of soda and peaked at about 150 cases of soda. And I, I would load it with a partner and empty the change and go to the bank and deliver a, a backpack full of change and, and move on and do that again the next week. And, and that paid for a significant
0: portion of uh, college education. And obviously, that ended up being a, a business that you sold before before going into Wall Street.
1: Yeah, yeah, I needed to I needed to exit that because I, I uh I was moving from. Philadelphia to New York to get onto the buy side and I get into leverage buyouts and did that for a a number of years. We, we needed to exit that and we exited very well and, and then moved on. And I didn't realize that when I actually did that, uh, that business that I, when, when I got started in and I, I sort of got into it using what amounted to a little leverage buyout. So I kind of, kind of took to that world a bit.
0: So obviously. That allowed you to to see the full cycle of like coming up with an idea, making it happen, uh, paying your bills like at that time that is what you needed and and then getting it to the finish line. Obviously, you started doing Wall Street, uh, what ended up becoming part of of JP Morgan today. But but really, at one point, you decided that it was time to pack the bags and and go to the West Coast and, and continue the studies. So so why did you come to that decision?
1: Uh, it's interesting, uh, Alejandro, I realized that wh- while I was on the deal side, and there's a big chunk of that that I just loved, it was, it was, I liked the pace, I like being able to see lots of different technologies and industries. I realized what I actually wanted, and after being in a number of board meetings, and I was actually a surrogate board member in one of the companies in the portfolio at, at age 21, uh, I was sitting across from the entrepreneur, and I, and I found myself pining to be on the other side of the table. I realized that I was really more of an operator, and that's what I really wanted to do. And I also still had an affinity for healthcare, care. Um, so I went, uh, went to the West Coast, for business school, and immediately came out uh, uh, into the medical device business in 1993. You know, that's when, when I say medical device, just to put it in a frame of mind for everybody, these are angioplasty balloons or, or stents. You might've heard of those. That's actually where I started my career was an angioplasty, or it might be a knee implant. That's the category of medical devices. It's a, a couple of hundred billion dollar industry in the United States and probably 500 billion globally.
0: So in this case, let's talk about the experience at Stanford, because obviously the the whole ecosystem in Stafford is is all about entrepreneurial and building your own business and and that's kinda like, you know, sometimes it's the final project that you do as part of the of, of the of the graduate the, degree that, that you get there. So why did you decide to go into into corporate rather than going into startups right away?
1: Uh, That's a great question. I actually tried really hard to get into startups right out of uh, business school, and I I couldn't because the area I wanted to do that was in medical devices. My classmates, for perspective, if you rewind the tape to 1993, Yahoo was just started. Um, In fact, a couple of my classmates ended up being there really, really early. Uh, One in particular, I want to say she must have been among the first 20 people at Yahoo. Another classmate of mine was one of the first handful of people at PeopleSoft, the, uh, the company that was then acquired by Oracle. Um, that, that guy went on to, to start Workday. It was a very uh, IT-rich environment, and lots of folks were getting into the internet, and, and it was really uh, the earliest days of the internet. Had I wanted to go into tech, uh, I think I probably could have ended up in a startup. I wanted to go into MedTech. That's what was interesting for me. And one of the challenges with MedTech is that startup companies necessarily need to bring in people who are experienced because of the nature of the business is, um, it's pretty specialized. Uh, So I just, candidly, I couldn't land a role. Um, So I thought, let me go cut my teeth in large caps and um, and go from there. So that's what I did.
0: So in this case, obviously you did... um... You did that, and then you went right away into startups. I mean, you had the experience with at least eight startups before you went at it. Really, I mean, you, you had the, that initial expertise before you decided to go at it on your own. Uh, but in one, of the, in one of the startups that, that you were working at, uh, literally the founder in a weekly meeting talked about a problem, and this was at Intuitive Surgical, that, that was quite, a, quite an experience for you. So tell us about this. Yeah, what
1: you're referring to is is really an extraordinary experience. I'm 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 kind of running the marketing and sales department there, and we had these weekly team meetings that that were uh, essentially meetings that were intended to bring up issues and we could break break down the barriers of them, and 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 uh, as a group cross functional, the CEO was in there, the founder, Dr. Fred Mall heads of each of the engineering disciplines and i was in there and we used to it was called the critical path meeting and by that meaning what's on the critical path to get us to our goal we were headed really really nicely to the kind of complete system of a robot and this is uh very complicated this was the very first robotic surgery technology that that uh, uh, was launched, and a key component of that is what's called the vision system. Um, it kind of think of a camera on a stick, and it needs to be incredibly high resolution. Fred, uh, Dr. maul Fred came into uh, that meeting, and um, you know, was kind of visibly a little bit sort of off. Um, he was clearly thinking about something, and he paused everybody and said, uh, "We have a problem. Our vision system, the camera, is inadequate." Now, we were using an off the shelf camera. We had actually surveyed every camera from any corner of the world built for surgery. And what he said was the best of the best of the best was inadequate. So, what we were charged with then is well, what do we do? Because that's a key component of the system. There must have been 60, 70 million in the deal at the time. This was back in 1999 when that was a an extraordinary amount of money to put into MedTech. And it was a huge endeavor. So this was one of those moments that was, it was sort of a bet the company kind of conversation. And that was, uh, we can't launch with this camera system. Now we gnashed that problem for a couple of hours. Um, it was one of the hardest problems to gnash. And then finally, one of the engineers said, wait a minute, we don't, have to worry about how heavy this thing is because the robot's holding it. The reason that's significant is that every camera on the market is built for a human to hold. And as soon as you could change that core assumption, you could jam all sorts of technology into a camera and make it eight pounds if you needed to. The regular cameras might be sort of a pound and a quarter, pound and three quarters, because somebody needs to hold it for two hours, three hours in some cases. You can't really do that and do it well with something that's eight, 10, 12 pounds. That breakthrough was a meaningful one. And what that really showed me, Alejandro, is that hard problems are hard for lots of reasons. But very often, one of the reasons they're hard is the underlying assumptions being made. And uh, I, I took that forward to really every hard problem I've had to deal with from a technical perspective in every company I've been involved with. And the way I kind of frame it is, Really smart people with a well-characterized problem and consistent set of accurate assumptions usually can find an answer. The time periods when either the problem's not well-characterized or the assumptions that are being made are not accurate is when you're running in, into trouble. Um, and that, that that really was a watershed event. that. Uh, we were able to design our own vision system and do so in unbelievably Rapid time period, uh, and when it was launched, the vision system is one of the things that got the most attention. Uh, so that was uh, that was a really incredible uh, learning experience for me, and and really a a heck of a thing to be part of.
0: So obviously, in in your case, I mean, this was just more of what you needed to learn to really arm yourself with that knowledge before you would go at it. And uh, your first uh, or your first rodeo was with Colibra. Uh, and Colibra was, a, again, obviously your first experience seeing the full cycle was really with with the soda machines, right? But, mm-hmm. but now with Colibra, you saw another company that you built, another company that got acquired, and in this case, acquired by Johnson & Johnson in a nine-digit transaction. So so from this experience with Colibra, tell us, kind of like in a high-level way, what was the business model and also what was your biggest lesson learned from from this experience?
1: Calibra is an insulin delivery technology um, for for those folks who have what's known as type 2 diabetes. It's the version of diabetes that you're not born with. It's what's called acquired over time. And typically that is for folks that, that uh, have obesity or some other pre-existing conditions. One of the key issues with that patient population is that they need to use insulin or dose insulin more frequently than daily activities will allow them to. So this was one of those instances where a well-characterized problem can lead to creative solutions. The characterization of that problem was a simple one. If you're a diabetic, and I'm sure some of the folks listening to this podcast either are or have family members who are since 17% of the population has diabetes, In the united states you have to dose insulin with an appropriate frequency to manage your sugar your uh, glucose levels if you're a type 2 it's not the kind of thing where if you don't dose it you're gonna you you risk some really dangerous very rapid onset kind of problems it's one of those things where overall your health is going to deteriorate won't feel as well and you'll start to have some complications over time well what that really means is Type 2 diabetics, as a general rule, have have a different level of kind of discipline. Situationally, if you're supposed to give yourself insulin uh, 20 minutes before a meal, you might wait till an hour and a half after a meal. Without getting too much into it, from the standpoint of management of the condition, that's a real problem. Uh, Clinically, it's a real problem. So going back to the lesson learned at Intuitive Surgical, the characterization of that problem was an extremely important one to realize that if you gave somebody a reservoir of insulin that they could activate through their clothes without using a needle, then you could increase the frequency of insulin dosage. That was the fundamental premise. It, it really broke through when we did focus groups of folks with type 2 diabetes. And we learned that there was a gardener that didn't dose himself with diabetes regular or with insulin regularly because his hands were dirty, so he waited. Where our device with its regular design would enable him to do that. There was a truck driver that is on long hauls and used to dose only at, red- at rest stops, hours and hours after uh, after he should. There's a teacher who would dose herself only in between classes um, because she didn't want students misinterpreting what a needle was. All of those things led to differences in insulin dosage. So the breakthrough there was recognizing that there's a very humanistic side to the reasons why there's a disconnect in, in when insulin was delivered. And we designed something to solve that problem. Now, the breakthrough, I guess, in many respects for that was the idea The real watershed was I wasn't going to let it go, Alejandro. There's no way I was going to let it go. I knew that this was a great idea. I couldn't convince the venture capital firms that originally backed uh, our effort to come up with an idea. And then um, finally, one of the partners in the venture firm um, said, uh, My third slide on a 10 slide deck, Alejandro, he said, Daniel, stop. And I thought, Oh boy, we're done. And he said, I finally got it. I, I, now I understand why you're so passionate about this. We're going to fund this deal. I never finished this like it. Wow. He just decided right there and um, said, yeah, how much do you guys think you need? And I told him $10 million. He said, okay, I'm going to take it to partnership. This is a deal that has to get done. So wow. the lesson there is don't give up. Know what you know. Characterize the problem well. Design the product for the problem. Design it really well. Be militant about that design. And and make sure you're solving a real problem, a painkiller, not a vitamin pill. You gotta solve something that's causing pain. And I don't mean physical pain. I mean it's some kind of frictional pain. But if you can manage to solve that with a with a well characterized product, uh, you'll win.
0: I'm talking about persistence. I mean that's something that you also experience with shockwave when you actually had uh, to put your last chip in. You know, it was the, uh, the college kids' uh, fun. So, so tell us about that nerve-wracking moment.
1: Yeah, that one was, uh, that one was edgy. So uh, these, both Calibra and Shockwave came out of these sort of incubation efforts. They're a little bit strange. Um, some venture firms gave uh, myself and a couple of partners $2 million, and all they, all they wanted out of it was a company. They didn't tell us what they wanted what kind of company. They said, go figure out an unmet market need in medical devices and either invent something or in license something, create a product. And if we like what we see, we'll give you the money to start the company. So that's how we got Caliber started. Shockwave was the second incubation effort that I did, similar model. And in the first one, the engineers that I was partnered with taught me how to invent. I didn't really know, I don't have any technical background. Um, but I, I, we co-invented a couple of things and but I was really sort of, I was a bag carrier for what those guys were doing. I didn't really know what I was doing. And at Shockwave, they, uh, uh, what they taught me during the Caliber experience, I started to come up with ideas. I started to mash up technologies and I came up with one that went all the way back to my first medical device company experience in the, in the, in the same sort of clinical area disease area uh, and that was in in coronary angioplasty i realized that if i combined some technologies from from another another uh, disease area with angioplasty that i could help solve the most complex and hard to treat cardiovascular disease there is it's called calcified disease and if you ever heard the term hardening of the arteries that's what that is it's calcium and it's as hard as a bone but it's embedded in the wall of an artery, and it's really hard to deal with. What I realized is if I mashed up some technologies, I could probably solve that problem. The trouble is that I came up with the idea right, right towards the end of 2007, beginning of 2008. That was a terrible time to start a company. Uh, it was really atrocious. There was In, in med tech, nothing was getting funded as early stage. And, and uh, Alejandro, again, this is one of those things where I, I knew it was going to work. We had done some quick and dirty benchtop things, and I just knew that this was going to work. And I was not willing to let it go. Under no circumstances were I willing to let this thing go. But the venture guys didn't agree. They didn't like the idea. They didn't like any of the other ideas we had. And in fact, further to that, they said, look, it's at that point, you know, late 2008. And they said, there's really just nothing here. No way to start a company out of any of this. So um, we're just going to shut down the incubator. And that was my job. I mean, that was all I had. Uh, I had four kids. And, and that was an edgy thing for me. Uh, I was outside of the Bay Area where most of med Tech is. And I realized at that, uh, at that moment, I can't let this go. So you're right. Uh, what I did was I, I negotiated to acquire the intellectual property out of the incubator before we shut it down. And I, and I paid for it using my kids' conference. I got another job, and, and uh, nights and weekends for three years, uh, me and a couple of folks put together some proof of concepts and some benchtop experiments. And uh, that name, Fred Mull, came back again. Fred, uh, uh, Fred and I have maintained a long professional and, and personal friendship. And um, I showed him the technology, and he said, well, Daniel, I think you really have something here. And I said, Fred, I know. I've been I've been working on this. I haven't told you about it, but I've been working on it for quite a while. Fred led what became a four million dollars Series A, and in uh, the beginning of 2012, I went on full time as CEO of Shockwave. That you know that experience continued until I left that company to then start Avail, my current company. But I, before doing that, I turned the reins over to a guy called Doug Godshall, who's the current CEO uh, for what is now a public company under uh, under a ticker SWAV. It went public in um in uh, March of twenty nineteen. So um that that was that was definitely a full circle one. Uh, but a, a, a very, very high stress uh kind of early early environment there to get that thing kicked off.
0: So then obviously Shockwave incredible journey. Uh right now we're talking about a company that that the market cap is is over three billion. So I mean it's incredible that that's such a persistence and and not accepting a no for an answer, you know, really brought this incredible concept to life. So, so I guess from this journey, I mean, uh, what would you say was your biggest takeaway?
1: You know, I think uh, uh, it's, it, you know, jockeying for, for the biggest takeaway is going to be persistence. And, and frankly, I'm going to go right back to that Tuesday morning meeting when we discussed the, the scope all the way at Intuitive Surgical. It's the notion that um, smart people with a well-characterized problem can come up with a creative solution. We had to deal with a number of those at Chalkwave, and not the least of which is our our, uh, technology required putting 70 uh, atmospheres of pressure into a balloon, an angioplasty balloon, that was designed to burst at 12. And then... What we had to do to be able to do that is, is realize how to mash up a couple of technologies properly and take a page out of out of uh, physics. We went to core physics capabilities and relied on them and tuned it, the, the technology to be able to to work off of core physics principles. And it's singularly because the problem was incredibly well characterized and the right people were around the table and we were persistent.
0: So in, in, your, in your situation, obviously, you gave the reins of the company to, to someone to really take a public and become the CEO. Uh, and then you obviously use that time to spend more time with the family and then also to incubate what would become your next baby, Abel Mid Systems. So tell us about this one.
1: Yeah, so uh, it's exactly right. I mean, I when I when I uh, left uh, Shockwave, it was because in 2016 I traveled a quarter million miles for the company, and when my last investors were pre-public investors like T Rowe Price and Fidelity, it became very clear that we were headed public. So I I, I did in fact make. The family-related choice uh, to step back a bit there. And then a little later on in 2017, that was the first half of 2017, the second half of 2017 kind of pulled the covers back on an idea that uh, that had been cooking a little bit. And, and that was to create a technology that enabled what are known as clinical specialists. And then of course, salespeople who most people aren't aware spend a good 75, 80% of their time in procedure rooms or being involved in procedures, selling the technologies that surgeons use in the surgery rooms themselves, in the operating rooms. And um, it's really a uh, kind of a technical selling type of a role, supporting the the surgeon through what they're doing. The problem with that is that the requirement to physically be in the room um, was limiting. If you've got 15 customers you can only be in one room at a time and if you've got to go from one room to another room across town you waste you know an hour or two or three as it turns out those people waste 60 percent of their time in logistics going from one location to the next and as somebody who's coming off of operating um you know a, a medical device company with sales teams out there and knowing the industry as, as well as I did, that was an untenable problem that with today's technologies really could be solved. So we, we, uh, uh, we launched a, a, a veil and, and I, and I got some of the same cast of characters from Shockwaves' early days of investing, including Fred mall, um, to, to, uh, to back the company in the early formation days. And then uh, went on in, in early 2018 to raise a $10 million series a, I tacked on 15 million of a series A1 at the beginning of 20. And um, about uh, seven months later, um, uh, closed on a round for $100 million to uh, scale the company. Um, the, The intent here and the gutsy part of this is we're building a network of hardware that goes into operating rooms. And then, and we're not charging the hospitals for it at all. What we're doing is is charging the remote person a fee a uh, time based fee uh, to access the operating room, obviously with permission of the hospital and the physician. and um, what we're recognizing is uh, a terrific amount of traction. Um, we're seeing an ability to disseminate medical technologies and medical techniques uh, considerably faster than they can if you have to be there physically. Uh, in, in the room to do it, which has been the norm for 40 years.
0: I mean, one thing that is for sure, Daniel, is that being at the right time in history is everything when it comes to building and scaling companies. And before, we never saw uh, nurses and doctors on the front pages of, of of magazines and newspapers. And now, you know, especially with COVID, that's the that's the norm. That's the day to day. So, I mean, obviously, you've been at it for a while in the medical devices space. Would you say that maybe, you know, everything that has happened with, with COVID has really pushed the wind behind all of the healthcare sector and perhaps even medical devices?
1: Yeah, I would say, uh, I'd say that's right in many respects. Um, you know, one of the things uh, I'm going to sort of tip a hat to those who deliver care every day, uh, there's an extraordinary amount of uh, work and, and effort and Expertise uh, leveraging to be able to treat patients in normal times. Unsung heroes in in uh, in the nursing and, and physician community. Um, that was a daily occurrence for my career for uh, all of it pre-COVID. Right now, of course, I'll broadly state that of course healthcare is having a moment uh, in and around the pandemic. Um, from an availed perspective, what we have created. Um, is certainly uh, gets benefit of a lot of tailwinds due to COVID, but the fundamental issue that we're the problem we're solving is a pain point. Uh, I had alluded to earlier that you try to solve pain points, um, come up with painkillers, not vitamin pills. It's a pain point because 50 to 60% of the uh, medical industry's field team's time is wasted in logistics. That means that they also can't get to places where they're needed, and, and, and uh, clinical care can actually be impacted by that. Um, we've created a, a, uh, a technology that allows them to support all of their customers and for the best technical expertise to be brought to bear in every procedure across the country and ultimately around the world. Um, I would say that overall, healthcare has some tailwinds right now that are meaningful and, you know new new medical technologies are, are definitely having a bit of a moment. Uh, having said all of that, you know it''s it's, it's got to be stated although blindingly obvious that uh, as, as, as much as the tailwinds have have provided in terms of lift for a veil, uh, you know I would trade I would trade uh, uh, slower growth for no pandemic in heartbeat.
0: So I guess uh, in this case, Daniel, I mean, obviously, it's been a-, a tremendous journey as an entrepreneur. I mean, a tremendous journey as being part of of the world of startups, no, and and a journey full of lessons learned, full of the good, the bad, and the ugly. Which is obviously the journey. It's not a straight line. So, if you had that opportunity of of going into the time machine and and being able to sit down with your younger self, that younger that younger Daniel that was coming out of Stanford and thinking about a career shift and and going at it and and perhaps entering the the startup world, what would be that one piece of business advice that you would give to yourself, given what you know now before launching a business and why?
1: Uh, One piece of advice. Uh, It's not something I can put into a strip that goes inside of a fortune cookie. But uh, what I will say is, um, if you're gonna start a business, pay attention to the problem you're solving. Understand it at its fundamentals. And most importantly, try to deconstruct why it's a problem. And if you deconstruct why it's a problem and you've got yourself and other smart people around it, you'll come up with a solution that is groundbreaking. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a technology. It can be a service. But if you deconstruct a problem properly... And create what what I like to call product to market fit. Uh, what you'll find out is, be it a service or a technology or or or, or uh, some other type of product, if you have the right product to market fit, so many things happen differently than when you don't. Uh, so I, I guess that would be that'd be the number one lesson: is it all starts at the product.
0: Very profound. So uh, so Daniel, for the folks that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? So uh, you can certainly hit me up on LinkedIn. Um, that'd be a great way to do it. If if your interest
1: is to learn a little bit more about Avail, you can certainly do that via uh, our website in the info at. You can learn about Avail that way. But if you got interest in connecting directly, uh, feel free to uh, send me a note on uh, on LinkedIn. We'll see if we
0: can connect there. Amazing. Well, Daniel, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker show today.
1: Absolutely. Thanks very much for the opportunity, Alejandro. I've, uh, I've enjoyed it and I appreciate the
0: opportunity. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at advisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the DealMakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.